0: Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 44. I hope everyone's doing well. Um, Hope everyone has gotten their shots already or gotten a shot. I've gotten one shot got a couple of weeks before I can get shot number two, uh, looking forward to a vaccinated society where we can get back to some sense of normalcy. And, uh, a lot of you are taking that steps. You're, you're, you're doing what you can, uh, and appreciate that. And of course, still wearing masks, uh, where appropriate. So, uh, you know, thank you for, for all of you for doing your part uh, it's the type of things that are necessary for uh, the people that I interview to get back to work. I'm also dealing with a little bit of distraction this week, a little bit of spring fever, looking ahead at uh, first real vacation and probably three years and uh, looking forward to that. But also planning ahead so that I don't miss any weeks of podcasts and just a little insight into the process. I tend to record several episodes in advance. I think the soonest I've ever recorded an episode and released it was like about a week and a half in advance. And, uh, very often I'm two or three months out with these interviews. And so that's what I'm trying to do right now to get way ahead before, you know, late spring and summer gets here. And for example, I've already recorded, uh, an interview that'll be released later already this week. Um, but starting Friday, I've got a I think think I've got a seven-day period where I'm going to be recording five interviews. So all for, it's like more than a month's worth of content. So, um, and these are some great guests and they literally are all over the world. So if you're not already, make sure you're subscribed, uh, following Life in the Pit, wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please leave a five-star rating and review. Um, That really helps us to be visible to people who haven't yet discovered this podcast. Uh, Another thing you can do is also share each episode, uh, share it on social media. And finally, the last way that you can support this podcast is with any type of donation at all. You can find that on a donate button at my website, davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. $1, $100, whatever you'd like to, to give I am more than grateful, and uh, thank you in advance. All right, talking about all over the world, my guest this week is on the opposite side of the country from me. He lives in Wenatchee, Washington. I'm talking today to Brady Aldrich. He is a multiple instrumentalist. He plays some percussion, some trumpet, some piano. He's done some music directing, um, and I wanted to talk to him about you know, just living somewhere in Washington that's not Seattle and talking about how, how do you stay busy in theater. And he talks about the opportunities that are there. But he also has done some work on the sound booth. And we talk about, you know, what what musicians should expect in the pit when working with the sound team and vice versa. If you're on sound, what to expect from the musicians. But also we're kind of following up on the two episodes that I did with John Eldridge about keyboard programming. In fact, the genesis of this episode was Brady giving me an email telling me how much he appreciated that episode. But one of the things that crossed his mind when he listened to it is, well, how do you get started? And he had some ideas on that from experience. So if you are a music director or a keyboardist and you'd like to get started in theater, we're going to run down the list of everything you should consider to get started so that you can be a music director this year when theaters open back up. Here's my conversation with Brady Aldrich. All right, Brady, thanks for uh, taking the time to come on the show today. It's good to meet you. Sure. Good to meet you, David. Um, you, so I believe you're coming from, am I pronouncing it correctly, Wenatchee? Or is it Wenatchee?
0: Wenatchee. Wenatchee? Wenatchee, Washington. Yeah, you're close.
1: Yeah, I had to look that up on the map. I mean, you know, from from someone who's <laughs> I spent a week in L.A. That's the closest I've been to Washington, <laughs> 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 which is still pretty far away. Uh, so, yeah. so from a kind of an East Coaster's perspective of Washington, you know, I you know we know about uh, Seattle, of course, and we know about. Uh, you know, Twin Peaks, <laughs> you know, kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of, I guess, just east of Seattle, and of course, you know, there's Helena. Uh, so I had to look up Wenatchee on the Wenatchee. Sorry, I'll get used to it. I had to look up Wenatchee on the map, and uh, doesn't look that far away, but but it looks like you may be quite a ways from Seattle. So you
0: it's about three hours. It's 140 miles.
1: But okay. uh, but I looked up some images. Some uh, you know, you got some. You're right there in the mountains. It looks like. Oh yeah. Yeah, really yeah. beautiful.
0: Okay. The um the we're only at about seven hundred s- feet above sea level, but um so we, but we get a lot of snow.
1: Okay. All right. Great. Well, uh, ho- it's spring now, so <laughs> hopefully right. not as much. <laughs> That's right. Hopefully no more this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, given that you are three hours from Seattle, so what what is the theater scene like where you live?
0: It's it's actually really, um. Robust. Um, the town, Wenatchee, and the major surrounding areas, uh, there's about 80,000 people. So it's big enough to have a Costco, but small enough to retain the rural feel. Nice. Um, the uh, the big industry around here is uh, tree fruit agriculture. The Wenatchee is known as the ap- apple capital of the world. Oh, okay. Um, and Wenatchee has a cross-river neighbor called East Wenatchee. Um, but for all intents and purposes are one uh, city right um, but we have three high schools with very active theater programs and a very nice um, performing arts center that hosts both community and regional productions okay um, It's too small for large like Broadway tours but Seattle only being three hours away it's most of the people just drive over to Seattle and make a you know make an overnight of it to go see a show over there Nice. Um, That was pre-COVID, obviously. Right. (laughs) um, (laughs) But uh, the high schools each do two or one or two productions a year, and then the Performing Arts Center does three at least a year, plus all the intermediate shows they have on between musicals. Okay, great.
1: Uh, Now, um, you have quite a number of hats that you've done in theater, and I'm just going to touch on the musical ones so far. So you've... You've music directed. You played keyboards, trumpet, drum set, and percussion. So uh, let's just kind of start start at the beginning. So which one did you pick up first? How did you get into music?
0: I started playing piano at about eight or nine, I think. Um, My parents wanted me to go to lessons, and so I did. I didn't like it at first, and (laughs) it really... I didn't I was very reluctant to practice like a lot of kids, I imagine. right. But uh, of course you realize how much practicing makes a difference when you start getting passed over by other kids, right. <laughs> um, and then I played um, picked up drums and trumpet in that in kind of that order.
1: Is that in band?
0: Uh, yeah, okay. After I played uh, piano, I wanted to learn how to play drums so my parents got me a snare drum and a practice pad for Christmas. Right. Um and I learned the, you know, the basic rudiments uh from a book, but that only lasts so long before you want to start adding in the toms and the cymbals and all the other noise making stuff. Um so that was before 7th grade and in 7th grade I joined the school band, but they only offered trumpet, clarinet, saxophone, and flute as learning options.
1: Hmm.
0: Um I chose trumpet, probably cuz it was the loudest. Um, yeah. If you've ever heard beginner trumpet players try and play high notes, right. you, know, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> uh, and because I knew how to play piano, I, I started out playing trumpet, but because I knew how to play piano, the band, band teacher um, asked me to play orchestra bells, right, which led to my entrance into percussion. Um, I didn't have very many opportunities to play band in, a drum set in band. But I went, uh, so I went back and forth mostly between trumpet and percussion, and sometimes even in the same concert. Right. Um,
1: are the band programs pretty rich where you live? I, I mean, you know, I know like, I grew up in Florida, and Florida, Texas, you know, these are like football states, you know. So the the band programs are are really highly touted. The orchestra programs are few and far between,
0: <laughs> but the bands yes. are
1: really strong. <laughs>
0: Well, I grew up on the west side of the state on a little island named called Vashon Island, Mm. Um, and we had a we only had probably about twenty people in the band program, and they were supported. The arts were supported, and still are, but um, we didn't really have enough kids to have a really robust big band program. Right. Um, The schools over in Wenatchee, where I live now, are supported a lot better. Um, There's they have orchestra programs and a, and a and a very good mariachi program.
1: After you went through band and uh, high school and so forth, at what point did you decide to take music more seriously to to get it at a high level?
0: Well, that's interesting. I after high school, during high school, I started a a big hair rock band with some friends. Okay. Um, and I after high school, I thought I was going to be a rock star. You mm-hmm. know we had some pretty moderate success as a band. We even opened for great white at one of their concerts. Sometime. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and then, uh, I also, during high school, I took music pretty seriously in high school. I played also percussion in the Tacoma Youth symphony, which was during the school year. And then during the summer I played snare in the Seattle all city marching band. Uh, and that was all, I mean, I was, I was busy during high school. Right. Um, and i really liked my band director um, i had him through 7th from 7th grade all the way through high high school and i kind of thought of myself as a teacher's pet uh-huh. uh, cuz i was asked i was asked by the band director to do some copying and music prep on the very first version of Finale 1.0 in 1988 oh, wow it was on a it was on a mac plus with a just a massive 20 megabyte hard drive.
1: Wow.
0: Uh, It had like four cooling fans and it it was huge. Um, But my mom wanted me to go to college for a music education. And I remember you mentioning uh, Mr. Holland's Opus, I think, episode 41. Right. (laughs) My mom wanted me to watch that movie. Right. And I was kind of on the fence about teaching before that, but honestly, that movie kind of pulled me onto the no side. Um, Right. (laughs) I just, I don't. I don't really have that big of a heart for teaching. Right. I, I think my whoever I'm teaching, I expect them to get further along than they do, and it gets frustrating for me. So, um, anyway, I I have total respect for people that teach and teachers in general.
1: Yeah, I do always wonder, like people who've seen Mr. Holland's Opus, what what their interpretation of was at the time. I, I suspect for a lot of people it's showing the the validation of going into teaching because, you know, I mean, at the end, all of these students are profoundly affected by what yeah. he has done. And, um, it, but I guess, you know, I mean, when that came out, I was, uh, I can't remember what year it came out. I think I was in college though, studying to be a, a composer with like nothing but film composer was on the horizon. You know, that was like mm-hmm. right in my sights. And, um, you know, when I finished that film, it was uh, the only message I could come out of that was it was a cautionary tale. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I mean, ironically, I do teach and I do love teaching. Uh, I've never I, I, maybe it's because that it I've never taught in a public school. You know, I, I teach independently and, and so forth. But, uh, yeah, for for those to whom it is meant to do that and that have a passion for it. I mean not only applaud you, but you know it's invaluable to have people like that. we you, You've got to have uh, the music programs, as we know, it will die without dedicated individuals. So you know I'm <laughs> I, I hope I hope it inspired someone.
0: <laughs> yes. yes, me too. yeah, and I, I really I think that that movie pointed out that I think a lot of band and music teachers feel kind of unappreciated. Um, that movie points it out right and then, but they really figure out how big of an impact they have at the end when so many many kids um, come around to celebrate the teacher my my band director has since moved to Texas, but um, I, I still um, he's the only teacher I've ever had that I'm still in contact with so.
1: oh good okay so let me just backtrack you said um, you decided that music education, Uh, You know that wasn't ultimately what you wanted to do. Did you finish the degree, or did you did you change your major?
0: I went through. I went to a year of uh, community college at Tacoma Community College, and I actually was studying music theory and general studies because I really didn't figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, But after I started my after I started dating my now she's my wife, but when I started dating her. Uh, her dad was a broadcast engineer, and I totally took a right turn into that field. Nice. That um, it, it seemed to me like at the time there was more job security. It was a little better. Um, but my formal music education was finished after that. Right. Um, yeah,
1: <clears throat> but, but I assume like a lot of musicians, you were able to keep it up on your own. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I still played in the rock band um, for a couple of years, and then I, I just, it wasn't the life for me anymore because they were kind of going in a direction I didn't want to go in.
1: Right. You um, know, speaking of hair bands, I mean, have you ever gotten to play Rock of Ages, the musical? I have not yet. That's a great. It's <laughs> a great show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I played it in two thousand seventeen. was, uh, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was two thousand seventeen. That's just a, It was just a fun show. Uh, I mean, because it's, it's so well arranged, you know, you're, you're playing, uh, I mean, it, it, it was kind of profound when the first time with the band, I got to play, uh, mm. don't stop believing, you know, the uh, journey. <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had to like, I had to create the sound myself. I didn't have like journey piano or, <laughs> uh, okay. or, or whatever it called for, <laughs> you know, I had to work that in, but, uh, yeah. And, and we'll be talking more about uh, that in just a moment. Um, so what got you into theater? What was your what was your first experience with theater?
0: My first experience was um, in grade school. Hmm. I had just started learning to play piano. Um, and my older sister played a townsperson or a youth townsperson in a community production of Music Man. Mm-hmm. Um, I was taking piano lessons there, so I appreciated the musical part of it. But the spectacle of the theater is kind of what drew me in. Um, the next year they did Oklahoma. And I was I was pretty well hooked by then. Uh, it was a small town. Vashon Island was a small town or is a small town. So the lead actors are usually the same in every show. Um, right. They just that's It's kind of typecast in that regard. Yeah. um yes yeah, i remember see, they did i was just Go gonna ahead. say
1: see waiting for guffman for 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 what we're talking about
0: <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that's yeah. right the lead male and the lead female were the same and i think probably five in a row right <laughs> um, and they did my fair lady and oliver after that and it was just uh, it's just crazy right. um but the very first show so it was really not very good um trumpet player then but the very first show i ever played in was the same community production of gilbert and sullivan's the mikado Mm -hmm. um i played the second trumpet book and i didn't consider myself a very good player i still don't think i was a very good player then and i remember not playing during certain parts of the score because i didn't want to stick out with my bad (laughs) playing right um and it was a small theater i think 200 seats and the pit was in an aisle in front of the stage. And we were literally three feet away from the people in the front row. I mean, mm. at the same level. They had to look over us to see the stage.
1: Right. <laughs> um,
0: blocking the aisle like that was probably certainly against fire code. Right. <laughs> um, along with all the extra wood they kept under the stage. <laughs> it was right. just a fire waiting to happen. Yeah. So but that it, was kind of my first experience really getting into theater musical theater
1: yeah it's like if if the smoking uh, i mean if the theater wasn't no smoking it should be at that point <laughs> yes
0: yeah, that's right <laughs>
1: yeah so since then you know since you got started in theater what are what are some of the shows you've done and um you know what types of what types of theaters and venues have you done them and i guess what instruments did you play
0: <laughs> yeah um after high school I, because I, uh, I played the Mikado in high school. After high school, I played the percussion books because I was still playing percussion and drums then. After high school, I played the percussion books in another production of The Music Man uh, My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music, and Something's Afoot, which I don't think very many people do that show anymore. Right. Um, and then a um, the few years after that, was my introduction to keyboard parts in musical theater, multi-voice right. uh, parts. I played the, my first time playing keyboard was in the keyboard book in Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking how cool it was to be able to play all these different sounds and all these different melodies and parts um, that fill in the score. Right. Uh, the, and the accordion part is very prevalent in that show. Right. Right. We know when, when
1: I first saw Fiddler on the Roof, the show, first heard the music um, as a uh, and I'm talking about the the Broadway score, you know, mm-hmm. it took me a little while to appreciate it because, again, I was a big film music fan. So yeah. my first encounter with Fiddler on the Roof was the 1971 film. And, uh, you know, I, I think even a lot of film music fans who aren't like John Williams fanatics don't know <laughs> that that was actually John Williams first Oscar winning score but not as an original but in the adaptation category he
0: really he arranged,
1: he arranged that and the big centerpiece is the overture the main title it's like the the tradition is pretty much like the broadway except you know it's bigger you know it's like an mm. 80 it's an 80 piece orchestra instead of a you know 25 30 piece or whatever <laughs> you know yeah. played it on broadway uh but then John Williams had Isaac Stern for the main title and wrote basically a violin concerto
0: <laughs> ah.
1: using themes from fiddler on the roof uh, but it, well, in addition to some original themes like there you can hear it and go oh yeah that's definitely john williams but then you hear oh here's all these this other stuff but yeah, if, i just say anybody who wants to just hear what i'm talking about you know just go find the main title or overture to the 71 film version of fiddler on the roof and of course <laughs> There's a bunch of other cues like that. And when I when I heard it on stage, I was like, oh, I'm missing that. Yeah. <laughs> Had to get used to that. But, you know, once you accept it, first of all, that this is the way people heard it before the movie. And it's what fits on stage. You know, it's like there's no way that what happens in the movie would sound good in a live stage. You know, <laughs> where we're right, act, right. actors have to sing over it and, and all that.
0: I'll have to go back and listen. I didn't know that about John Williams. I'll have to look. Go back and listen and listen for his signature kind of um, arrangements.
1: Yeah, uh, and there's a few other there's a few other cues in there that he did. But yeah, he did he did a few things like that. Like he also did Goodbye, Mr. Chips, uh, with Peter O'Toole and uh, Petulia Clark. I think that was like direct to movie musical. So like, there's no Broadway. Version of that. At least I don't think there is. You know, I, I think mm. I think that was kind of uh, that was something that they did quite a bit in the '60s. Is you know, let's just make a musical directly, <laughs> for, all right. directly for uh, for the screen. And he also did, I think Tom Sawyer, a musical version of that. So, um, <laughs> so, so he had he had all of this. I mean, basically, you know, he hadn't found Steven Spielberg yet. Once he did, yeah. <laughs> you know, his career so, kind of changed after that. So.
0: While we're talking about John Williams, if you don't mind, what do you you think his best um, score is? Oh, The Empire Strikes Back. Really? Yeah. Uh, Yeah,
1: I think I've heard you say that before. Yeah, I mean, people will go to my website for the podcast. If you click on, there should be a menu at the top. You may have to go to the homepage first. I don't know, but there should be a blog and I've got like my 100 scores on there, and so it's like it's, it's right there at number one. When people ask for like a score you haven't heard before or that's not super common, uh, there's a 72 film called Images mm. that it doesn't sound like anything else he did. It's the most avant-garde Percussion-driven score that he did, and it's just re- really fascinating. In fact, he uses a a Japanese percussionist as kind of like his featured player. Really, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I for it's on Spotify. I'm sure it's on streaming if you ever want to check it out. His images.
0: Yeah. Okay. Really. I'm writing it down.
1: Right now. now, now do you have a, do you have a favorite?
0: Uh, for John Williams, yeah. um, Empire Strikes Back is second. Okay. Um, my favorite score from him is. Is from E. T. But it's not the. I mean, the whole movie is good, but the last like 15 minutes oh, of the yeah. movie. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Where
0: think... they're where they're doing like going over the bikes, going over the hills, This the violins they use. It just fits it so well. Oh yeah.
1: It's certainly top top four, top five. Yeah. Um And of course, you know this. I mean, you know the story of that, right? With uh, Spielberg, it's kind of a legendary story within the film music. Um, that's a 15 minute cue, and he couldn't get any of the sync points to line up he was having oh, a hard time with that. So he was frustrated and Steven Spielberg says, I'll tell you what, turn off the screen, conduct it the way you would in a concert and I'll go and make sure the visuals match your music, like I'll recut yeah. it. And that's what happens, you can hear the music, it's it's very organic, it's very lively, but but it also just to how many directors would, would at any point in time ever say that. I can't imagine Hitchcock ever saying to Bernard Herrmann, you know, right. you know, go ahead and do what you want. I'll go, I'll recut my film to suit your <laughs> music. <Yeah. laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know how many, any directors, much less great ones would, would make that, but okay. Well,
0: it just speaks to their working relationship.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Okay. We, Sorry. We, oh no, we'll that's fine.
1: Uh, so, all right. So <laughs> theater people come back. We're, we're, we're yes. done with film for, for the moment. Um, so so i'm just gonna bring this out you 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 reached out to me you told me that you were a listener and you offered to come on the podcast and i just want to i want to say that because i want to encourage other listeners you you know i want the show to go on for a very long time you know once a week for year after year i want to be able to do do some things like that and there are there are good pitches and you know they're not so good pitches but what you did was very good so first of all you quoted actual episodes, you know, so you, you've listened to the podcast, you kind of know what it's mm-hmm. about. And you also mentioning an episode said, I have something to offer to that, that we didn't quite really get into. And, mm. uh, and so I wanna, what I want to get into now is, uh, you're talking about the series of keyboard programming episodes, um, uh, that I did with John Eldridge, uh, which was, I believe episodes 38 and 39. And, and we talked a whole lot about that. And, and I would encourage you, th- those are must listen episodes if you um, if you're kind of skipping around and checking interest. Uh, if you play keyboard, I certainly hope you checked it out. And if you don't, uh, really, <clears throat> if you're a fan of the pit, you need to check this out because the keyboard is one of the instruments you can't leave out of a pit. It's like if you've got a if you've got a budget problem <laughs> and you can't hire, say, uh, you know, all 14 pieces of a score. Um, well, well, keyboard is not one you can leave out. It's like you can leave out the second trumpet and the second trombone and maybe some of the reeds, you know, but you cannot leave out uh, the keyboard. So it's it's an imperative um, to kind of understand what's going on. And what we talked about was how, you know, maybe 40, 50 years ago, the keyboard was, you know, play the piano. And then maybe here's some strings, here's some... Uh, A little bit of organ (laughs) and and then starting in the 80s uh, as technology improved so did the demands on keyboardists and now you know you get something like mamma mia or spelling bee and you've got to play a a key that will do uh, a pattern you know set off a loop Uh, you got keys that play chords you've got zones and regions and that means that you know you're your 88 keys or 61 notes, however big your keyboard is, is divided into sections where this sounds like a string, this is setting off a chord, this is an organ, this is a timpani, <laughs> right. uh, this is a glockenspiel. And, Spiel. and um, you, you said, uh, first of all, you know, one of the things that you, you thought about was um, where do you even start with all that? So if you play keyboard... And you want to be able to do some of these shows. You don't want to have to turn down shows because your keyboard, you know, just has nine sounds. It's just a Yamaha keyboard with nine sounds that, you know, only right. uh, that won't do these books. Um, you might want to get started making some investments in that. So, what are some right. thoughts that you had on that for getting started?
0: Well, probably like most keyboardists, um, I started out just using the onboard sounds, like you talked about. Um, my first really useful keyboard, I think, was a Roland, mm-hmm. um, and I started out using MIDI via Finale to to play missing keyboard parts. Um, this is early on in my playing musical theater. That was kind of before the days of click tracks were really used, right? Um, and so. I tried using the finale-generated missing parts of the score, and the, but the tempo differences were just so bad that I only started using them sparingly. Right. But then Main Stage and Logic Pro from Macintosh came out in 2007, which kind of changed the game for keyboards, especially in the pits and live music and other things. Um, but like most people, I started to see the possibilities for musical theater. Um and it was it was pretty difficult to program patches that sounded authentic to a show, um, at first. But then, since then, they have come up with all kinds of patches and software that can do that. Um, but to begin, uh, both nowadays both MTI and Concord, Concord theatricals offer keyboard programming for rent. Mm-hmm. But now, of course talented main stage programmers like uh, like john eldridge who you talked to with stage sounds uh, ethan depp and some others produce some just fantastic main stage programming uh, that they rent right um and i don't even program from scratch anymore uh, most of the time i just rent it because the professionals are better at it than i am right. and with job and family and everything i don't have all the time i used to right uh, but mostly what i do is i just tweak programming for whatever Show needs I have at the time. Um, I did some, a lot of the shows, some of the shows I've did used Ableton to a limited success, um, and I've used Q Lab to trigger some, some non orchestra related sounds. Right. Um, but as you mentioned with um, with I think John Broadway shows and tours use ex- almost exclusively main stage for their keyboards. Right. And then a lot of them use uh, duplicate setups in case they have a failure, but that's most regional budgets or community budgets don't have that kind of um, money for that kind of redundancy.
1: Right. So I guess just kind of let's just go down the list. So, um, so if you play keyboard, first thing you need is a keyboard. Now the good news is, um, if you're if you say you're going to take a main stage approach, you don't have to you don't have to get like a two thousand key you know or three thousand dollar keyboard like you don't have to go get uh what is it is it is it a Nord
0: Nord yeah yeah
1: it's like you don't have to go get one of those uh, you don't have to get a top of the line Kurzweil I mean I, I when I started doing this it's like I I did like Google searches and it you know and it was you know you need you need this particular uh type of Kurzweil and I can't even tell you what it was anymore but <laughs> yeah but you know it, it was uh, I believe a it was like a $4,000 keyboard, you know, is basically yeah. what it was. Um, yeah. and that was the Broadway standard. And, uh, you know, well now you can, you can pay a third, a quarter to a third of that and get a, an 88 key keyboard. And really all you need is the capability of it acting as a controller. So, um, you know, one thing that I would, I would look for in a keyboard now is, um, you know, make uh, make sure that you're that you have like mod wheels, you know, and that is, uh, I m- I might put a picture on on the website if people don't know what that is, but you know, a minimum a couple wheels on the left side of the keyboard that will allow you know pitch change or adding vibrato or uh, something like that, um, and I'd get I'd get uh, three pedals, you know, you've got your sustain pedal, pedal damper pedal sometimes keyboard comes with a decent one other times you get to buy a you have to right. actually buy a damper pedal you know sustain pedal that that works pretty well and then of course uh, a couple of expression pedals that you can program to do certain things so one for patch changes one for volume pedal um now kind of on the along those lines i mean are there keyboards that you found that are kind of good for people on a budget getting started,
0: well, yeah, the the two bare minimum pieces you need to to use outboard sounds. Uh, you need a preferably an eighty eight key weighted keyboard. Right. Uh, the weighted you have to have the 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 velocity um, ability to change velocity, and you either need a USB or MIDI connectivity on those. Right. Um, and kind of the low end keyboards tend not to have that, but. I mean, yeah, less than a thousand dollars, you can get a, a a pretty good keyboard, right? Um, you need a you need a laptop or a desktop. The desktops take up a lot more room. Laptops are much better. Yeah. Um, and like you mentioned, you need uh, to make it really a lot easier to play. You need some pedals, a volume pedal, um, and even a, a pedal to change patches, so you don't have to. You, you don't have to use your hands to change patches
1: okay now yeah. uh now as far as a laptop goes i guess i guess this is where we probably should be banned brand specific is mainstage apple only i can't remember Mainstage is
0: apple only so yes. you do
1: need an you need an apple now you you probably don't need like a macbook pro or anything like that i wouldn't think i think you can get by with for for this purpose uh a little lower end uh, would you say that's true
0: Yes, yes. The MacBook Pro is would certainly do the job. at the lower, the lower end max. You just have to make sure that yeah. you have all the ancillary yeah. software not running. Right. Um, the rental programming from MTI and Concord, uh, the program they use, um, Keyboard Patch Solutions, that runs on both Mac and PC. But if you're going to use main stage, it's Mac only.
1: Right. Okay. And that's and it's probably good to keep in mind because uh, I mean. I mean, I don't remember. I don't know if MTI offers those keyboard patch solutions for all shows. I, it seems like I remember looking one time and seeing they didn't for certain ones, and I can't. Yeah, remember. Yeah, it's
0: not not all shows, right. um, but a lot of them. And then yeah, um, you know, John Eldridge, I'm sure would be happy to program something if you don't, <laughs> right? If you can't, or you know, rent his. Yeah, uh, if it's if a popular you, if you show. A he Mac. probably hasn't. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, another thing that that is i consider a bare minimum but is an audio interface mm-hmm. um that's what transfers the midi data between the keyboard and the computer and that also converts the converts the patch sounds from the laptop into audio that can be right uh, got into the sound system right so that's that's you can get a pretty good one of those for 150 dollars or so
1: yeah you know, I mean, I've heard, I've always been really happy with mine. I've got an um, I've got the one that's called the Baby Face. <laughs> and oh yeah, they, and, yeah. Uh, I don't even think that's like that's not even a, one of the ones that they offer anymore. But uh, that you know, right is one that gets a lot of attention. Yeah. You know? So there's a yeah, yeah lot lot of good um, companies out there.
0: I, Behringer makes a good one, and Mackie is the one I use, which is pretty good. Right. Um, but there's there's a wide range, and same with yeah. the keyboard, both the keyboards and the laptops. I mean, you can go. Right. Sky high with prices for those things. Yeah. Now, if
1: you're, um, you know, if you, you've got a surplus of disposable income, are there any other bits of technology you'd add on to beyond that, that we haven't really talked about?
0: Yeah. Um, if you have surplus income, I would just get better quality, like audio interface and keyboards. Um, I would definitely get the sustain pedal, which usually kind like you said usually comes with the keyboard. Get a volume pedal to change, um, you know, the patch volume while you're playing, right. and the patch change pedals. Yeah, that makes it pretty, right. pretty foot heavy, but at least it, it makes the overall product better.
1: And then, of course, you know, uh, from from someone who's done a lot of
0: film music, you know, uh,
1: s- someone in you know, a modern film composer is always like basically just following what are the latest sounds that sound libraries that people have done and um you know so it's like can i get strings that sound better can i get brass that sounds better uh i mean you can if you want i mean you can get brass so specific it's like this is what it sounds like if the brass are um you know if you are sitting in the middle of the auditorium and they're using these kind of mutes and (laughs) and so forth i mean you can get uh, if you start going that route, though, you better have a powerhouse of a computer because the the storage size on those and the processing right. power just gets really absurd. But you know, I mean, I've I've used Native Instruments for quite a while. You know, just yeah. kind of an all purpose thing, and it does take up a lot of room because I've got like you know what they call complete with a K. <laughs> you know, I've got all of that, and um, but it's it's not like you know like Vienna. String sound actually, you know, I have one product from East West, which is, uh, you know, symphonic choirs, and that one thing takes up a lot of processing power. You know, I assume if I yeah. if I got like their full stuff, it would be taking up a lot more. And you you can spend a lot of money on that end alone if you don't want. But I also say you know yes. besides main stage, um, you know if you're a music director, there's a lot of good. It's always good to have notation software, so such as Finale or Sibelius. Uh, Dor- right. Dorico is a new thing. I don't know anything about it, but people who have gotten into it really like it. Um, and then uh, what's called a DAW, digital audio workstation. So that would be, right. uh, you know, lo- logic. If you have an Apple, if you're not one of those that, that grew up with a different audio workstation or and have some, like, opinions about them, just go ahead and get logic it's, it's like two hundred dollars or three hundred dollars at most uh which is you know quite a discount compared to say pro tools or something like that
0: yeah yeah um pro, pro tools is kind of the gold
1: standard and if you've got a mac already it'll it'll work with the mac you know it's like it's it, i i uh, I have never knock on wood I've never had a problem with it I've been working you know, doing logic for about seven years now so logic's a great program all right so we talked about your music side you have you've done some technical theater work uh, as well what are some of the things that you've done in theater that's outside the pit
0: um well if it wasn't since I got introduced into theater if it wasn't a musical or it wasn't playing in the pit I was never really big on the acting side. I'm not a very good actor. Uh, If I wasn't playing in the pit, I'd be helping with the lighting and the sound design. Right. Um, And I remember your discussion with Beth Cox way back on episode four about how she had a similar experience. Um, I did some training in high school and since then with a professional lighting designer. who really taught me the basics of lighting. Uh, I was never really good at the lighting part, but I was good at helping people with or like i was never good at the lighting design part i should say but i was helping people yeah put their design on the stage um sound design came a little easier for me because my non-musical theater stuff the band the the uh, big hair band and right um, my knowledge of audio electronics i'm by no means an expert but having the knowledge of both playing and sound design um I think it gives me a unique perspective, right? Um, and I still do. I still do a little technical theater, but I'm more. I like the playing part of it more now. Um, and here in Wenatchee, we're blessed to have a a couple of fantastic professional theater uh, technical directors who really know their stuff. Um, and the audience experience is, is very good because of that. Okay
1: so if uh, from a sound designer's perspective, what is it that you need to do to know or what is it that you need to do when working with live instruments when you're working with a with a pit for a show?
0: Well the venue size and the orcs where the orchestra is in the venue is is a big a big topic um, whether the venue has sound reinforcement or not all the ones around here do, and most probably nowadays do. One of the overlooked, I think, issues is the acoustic volume of the orchestra compared to the balance of the actors. Mm-hmm. Placement of the, where the pit is is important, uh, but that's usually not changeable. And that's up to the sound designer to deal with that uh, difference. Some of the, Broadway, the newer Broadway shows, they have the pit Remote. You probably know that. Right. Wicked had theirs underneath the stage. Dear Evan Hansen has theirs remote. Those are the two off the top of my head. But um, technology has allowed better, a lot better balancing between the actors and the orchestra now.
1: Right. Now I know as a keyboardist, you know, I play for some theaters. It's like, well, find the best place for your amp, <laughs> and, right. and and we'll tell you if it's too loud. And others, where you know, we'll they'll they'll say that's fine but we're also going to take a monitor out of that so so that the actors can hear you and and also just kind of you know get maybe one side of the room a little bit better (laughs) you know because sometimes you know i've I've done pits where it's not in the center it's on the side so if you're on that side you've got a lot of band you're on the other side maybe not so much you know so so sometimes sound designers can help deal with that um but then I play, you know, uh, I've, I've done a couple of shows for Elon, which is, you know, professional caliber, um, you know, university, you know, theater program, um, North Carolina School of the Arts is also another one, you know, that, you know, one of these schools that basically people go to uh, with anticipation of, of graduating and going to Broadway and they've had, you know, some success, you know, at both those schools. And they have audio sound and re- reinforcement that's coming out of the keyboard and it's like your your amp, if you have it, becomes your monitor. Yeah. <laughs> you, and you turn it down so that you just you can hear that. But they they get the level right, and they and then they'll say, "Don't touch that volume, for any yeah. for any reason, <laughs> you right. know, except for like you know dynamics on your volume pedal and all that." But it's like leave that knob alone, and uh, we'll take care of that. So uh, that also was yeah. the case uh, in Atlanta at the uh, theatrical outfit. I got to play there for the. Uh, Atlanta musical theater festival and uh, yeah, very, very particular. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, for musicians that have not, especially in the high school and community part of it, um, musicians that have not played in a pit before, they've, sometimes they've never had their instrument mic to when they play, mm-hmm. uh, that can be a bit of a learning curve. I remember a st- quick story when I, a show I was in the violin player had a instrument mounted, uh, microphone on her violin now, right. when you're playing the violin your mouth is pretty close to that microphone right She didn't either she didn't even know or forgot that when she speaks the microphone picks up right her voice um luckily she didn't say any cuss words during right. the opening night but um, right. stagehand had to <laughs> quickly and quietly let her know that the audience can hear you right right that's
1: true uh, I mean, what are some other things? So, if you're you know if you're a pit musician, you haven't like worked with you haven't done a lot of shows, you haven't worked with you know a sound team. So other yeah. than you know, be mindful of where your microphone is, what are some other things that right. you found?
0: Um, I had a couple of tips, but I actually reached out to the <laughs> aforementioned professional sound designers that I know, and they gave me a couple of tips I hadn't thought of. Um, one of the things is they really like, pit musician to use headphones instead of monitor speakers. That is kind of up to the venue, but that reduces the bleed of the vocals into the pit mics, um, which adds some bad reverb. Um, and also, probably a big tip is, in many shows, the sound engineers are busy enough balancing all the vocal mics. right? So it's nice to have the pit musicians bounce their own volume. Keyboards can bounce levels with between patches and during a show with the volume pedal like we talked about or if you want more permanent control you can change the volume of individual individual patches within the software but you can get pretty far into the woods with that tweaking and adjusting keyboard programming is probably its own episode right, <laughs> exactly um, and in his he another good point he mentioned is that the, the need to balance goes for also wind doublers and percussionists as well for example, lean in towards the mic more on a flute, especially in the lower register, and maybe raise your clarinet as compared to a sax, depending on where the mic is. Um, percussionists get closer or farther away from the microphone with the tambourine or the, you right. know, the whatever the castanets or whatever you're playing. Right. And a big thing is ask the sound designer, the, the technicians, for help right. um, if you don't know where to put the mic. Most of the time, they place it for you, but... Some of the smaller companies really don't have that. Um, And also a bonus suggestion he gave me uh, that I hadn't thought about is look out for, between shows, look out for equipment or microphones that are out of place from the last time. Mm -hmm. Because maybe one has fallen off the mic stand or something like that. And let let them know if that happens. Because most of the time they don't have time to walk the pit before every show to check for that kind of stuff.
1: Right. Yeah, all very good suggestions. Okay, um, all right. Well, just to, we're running running out of time. I just want to just say, um, just ask. So, of the shows you played, what are some of your favorite shows?
0: My one of my favorite shows was uh, Newsies. I did a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. That was the bucket show list because I really like Alan Mankin's stuff. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Playing Fiddler on the Roof was a was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of partial to Music Man because I've seen three different productions of it, and I've played in one. And what are
1: some shows that you, what are some bucket list shows you haven't done yet?
0: That is a tough question. (laughs) Um, I would really love, this is my ultimate bucket list, I would really love to play, I know it's not licensed yet, but I'd really love to play the drum book on Dear Evan Hansen. Nice. And it's just a very cool rock and drum part. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, I would love to music direct Wicked when they start licensing that. Right. Um, those are a couple.
1: That's, yeah, good good choices, and uh, you know, not ones that are out there right now. So right. <laughs> that's, that's
0: why they're bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: you know, I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be bold, you know, and make a prediction, and, and you know, and pe- people can. Use this sound clip to, to show how wrong I was or how right I was. But <laughs> uh, I'm going to predict you'll be able to do Dear Evan Hansen before you can do Wicked. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> I, possible. I, I I think Wicked just has Wicked has such a long kind of a multi generational fixation on theater populations right now. I think it's just going to yeah. keep on going. Uh, whereas Dear Evan Hansen was a very strong show, but I don't I don't know if it's going to be one of those that Broadway will support year after year after year you know yeah maybe i'm wrong but we'll see (laughs) it's
0: it's got a small cast wicked is will be hard to pull off technically yeah because of all the special effects they have in that show
1: oh yeah yeah i mean when i when i first saw it i was like i i honestly i couldn't have told you much about the music other than the few songs i knew i knew gravity i knew for for good um but it's like i was too mesmerized by all the green by all the set design <laughs> and the, the special effects and 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 so forth that it was it was just one of those that uh you know i had to i had to actually listen to the cast recording separately to afterwards to like pick up the songs you know <laughs>
0: themselves yeah.
1: you know beyond the ones that i already knew uh yeah. all right do you have a horror story from your time in the pit
0: i do from newsies a couple years ago there was a i was playing the keyboard two book and there was a fire building fire a couple blocks away Mm. and we started smelling smoke in the theater and we're like what was that smell and then the fire department decided to cut the power to the whole area well um as part of one of their protocols and so we're just sitting there playing along and everything goes dark right um or we didn't think the power was going to come back on right away that's but the cool part about that was that everybody kind of the audience kind of went out in the lobby and the cast came out into the lobby and it was right at the end of the show this happened and they came out and actually serenaded the audience with the finale in the lobby
1: wow a lot of the horror stories you know that that have been shared on here have been for the most part near misses you know it's like there haven't i haven't haven't come across any like tragedies like this ruined the show. You know, it's just like th- this moment's uncomfortable, but we get yeah. through it somehow. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is I guess a little bit more fun. You know, is things that you can laugh on now uh, right. are, are better than ones that still make you cringe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, is there, there is there a standout fond memory from your times in the pit?
0: Fond memory back after years ago. I was music directing a production of Fame, Mm. and it's not the one they license now. It was the one based on the movie, the 1980 um, movie with Irene Cara. It was word just about word for word the movie, and all the songs were the same. And the director even did the blocking the same. Um, And it wasn't in the script, but the director and I both wanted the actress that was playing Coco to play the piano and sing at the same time um during the song out here on my own Mm -hmm. she was really nervous about playing and singing she was a good piano player and a fantastic singer um but she was nervous about playing and so i tweaked the piano part a little bit and probably i don't know if it was against the contract at the time or not but i transcribed the ending of that song from the movie and added it to the end of the song right um that she pulled it off fantastically, and years later she came back and found me or saw me somewhere and told me about how that moment had kind of really helped her, and she's now going into music theater as a career, and that was kind of a pivotal moment for her, and so that was really kind of a fun memory for me is a little bit of a mr holland's opus right there
1: <laughs> right but, so, but on the on the good cool. kind yes
0: <laughs> that's right right that's right
1: <laughs> okay good um well is uh where can people follow you if they'd like to do that
0: well i'm on the old standbys F- facebook twitter and instagram uh brady aldrich okay uh, is what i'm on all three of those Okay, good all and, right. Uh, e- email bradyaldrich at gmail.com is my email. Can okay. You? All
1: right, great. Uh, well, again, thank you know. first of all, thank you for listening to the podcast and for sure. offering feedback and uh, and also coming on the show yourself to share your
0: experience. No problem, dude. I, I appreciate the time. And that wraps
1: up episode number 44. Again, this whole conversation came about because Brady said, um, I heard your episode on keyboard programming. And there were some things that you didn't talk about that I would like to talk about for any of the episodes, whether it's this one or any past episodes, if, if you have some experience, some expertise for something you'd like to talk about, um, I'm always looking for guests down the road. I do have probably several months of guests, uh, lined up either recorded or about to be recorded and ready to go. Uh, but you know, Summer, fall, at some point, I'm going to need some more guests. And and I rely on you listeners to pass along some recommendations. This is a small field. Uh, there's not a lot of people that play music for musical theater uh, in this particular way that are passionate about it. And so definitely, if you hear something on an episode, you think, hey, I wish we could talk about that, if it's something that you're able to talk about please get in touch. You can do that through the contact form on my website. Once again, davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Okay, big guest next week. Uh, That's all I'll say as far as a teaser. Definitely make sure that you come back on April 16th to hear episode number 45. As a reminder, if you'd like to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a big special thank you to Mark Parolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can leave feedback, donation, or find out more about the podcast at davidlanemusic.com podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.